All right, we might like to uh, keep your Bibles open there as we uh, look into this, this parable this morning of Jesus. Of course, this morning we're going to continue in our series in the parables of the kingdom of God in Matthew chapter 13. These parables themselves, in these parables, Jesus is communicating to his hearers what the kingdom of God is like or the kingdom of heaven. Matthew often uses the term kingdom of heaven because uh, he's writing to Jewish uh, readers mainly and uh, they didn't like to actually even say the name God uh, because they thought that that was actually um, um, not, a, uh, not a very reverent thing to do to be able to use. And so they would often refer to, uh, to the kingdom of heaven instead of the kingdom of God. So it is that in these parables, Jesus is communicating to his hearers what this kingdom of God is like. In other words, what he's trying to do is he's trying to communicate how uh, we should view the different aspects of the kingdom, how as God's people we should understand God's kingdom and and the context in which it operates. And we know that uh, just from the parable of the sower last week that the kingdom of God very much operates within the hearts and lives of those who have come to believe in Jesus Christ. Those people with hearts who had that fertile soil that David spoke of in, uh, in the parable of the sower last, uh, last week. But not only in the, in, did we look at it from in terms of the context in which it operates, but also how the kingdom is, to, how it grows. And we're going to look at this next week when it comes to looking at the parable of the mustard seed and the leaven. But also, in two weeks' time, we're going to be looking at how valuable and how precious the kingdom of God is, how, uh, how wonderful it is to be a part of the kingdom and have the kingdom, have us being part of the kingdom of God. But this morning, as we come to this parable, the parable of the weeds, we're going to be actually focusing on the actual opposition to the spread of God's kingdom in the world and how God intends to deal with it. Before that, though, what we, what we need to do is we need to really make clear what it is we're actually talking about when we, uh, when we talk about the kingdom of God. What is it we actually understand about it is the, what it is the, the, uh, the kingdom of God is? Now, a kingdom, by definition, basically speaks of a king and the scope of his reign. Broadly speaking, the kingdom of God is God's rule over all of creation, over all, of, all the things that he's created, both visible and invisible. In fact, several passages of scripture show that God is indeed the undeniable sovereign and king over all things. Psalm 103 verse 19 says this. It says, the Lord, speaking of God, has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. God is indeed sovereign over all things. But more narrowly, the kingdom of God is the spiritual rule over the hearts and lives of people, those who have actually have come to, to put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ and who have submitted to God's authority in a willing way. We see that in Matthew four seventeen, where Jesus came preaching the gospel of the kingdom and it says, and Jesus says, repent for the kingdom of God is near. It is for people to repent. That's how we enter into the kingdom of God. That repentance is necessary. Jesus said that his kingdom in in John 18.36, his kingdom is not of this world. Now it's gone off the screen there. You see that this kingdom, the God's kingdom, is also both present and future. That right now we see the kingdom of God operating in the lives of those who have, uh, you know, who have put their faith and trust in Jesus. Believers all across our world today, the kingdom of God is, 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 is present. 
But there's also going to come a day when God's kingdom will be set up and all of creation will come under the literal rule and reign of Jesus Christ. Matthew 25 verses 31 to 34 says, But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right but the goats on the left. And then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. We also see it in Revelation 11, chapter 11 and verse 15, where it says, the, the seventh angel sounded and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has now become the, the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. So we see that there is both this present aspect of the kingdom, the kingdom visible in the lives of people who have come under the uh, the rule and the authority of God, those who have submitted their lives to Jesus Christ. But there is this future aspect when the kingdom will be experienced in all of its fullness, when Jesus Christ returns and will make everything new. And when it comes to these parables of the kingdom, we see that uh, Jesus is actually um, teaching in parables for a reason. And again, David explained this a little bit last week. He preaches in parables because what he wants to do is he kind of wants to sift. He wants to sift out the people who are really serious about wanting to know about God and finding the life that is the, the, that comes through him and those who really aren't that serious at all. And so that's why he often finishes his parables with the word, He who has ears, let him hear. So I pray that your spiritual ears are on this morning and that your hearts are open to what God has to say to us. Now this parable of this of the weeds we see is a similarity between this parable and of course the parable that we looked at last week, the parable of the sower. We see that there is a sower, there is a field, there's seed which is sown and there is a harvest. But there are also some key differences as well. We see that not only is it one sower, but there are in fact two sowers. That there are two types of seed that are sown, referring to two different types of people. And the harvest has to do with eternal judgment in this one, rather than spiritual fruit that we saw in the parable of the sower. And like we saw in the parable of the sower, Jesus himself gives an explanation of this parable. But you notice that those, the ones who actually came for the explanation at the end, the parable, you'll see in verse 36, it says, Then he, that is Jesus, left the crowds and went into the house. And his disciples came to him saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the fields. Jesus had been teaching the crowds. He'd been teaching them on the, on the lake of, of on, on the shore of the lake. And, uh, he'd finished teaching the parable and he goes back inside this house in probably around Capernaum. He goes back inside this house and, you know, he's there available to anyone who want to know more about the parable, who, who want to know more about what the kingdom of God is and how they can be a part of the kingdom of God. And who come to it? Who come to him? Not the multitudes. But those whose hearts are soft and open to him, his disciples, those who realise who Jesus is, that he is indeed the one who is going to bring about the kingdom of God and the one who's proclaiming it right now and through his death and resurrection will bring about that kingdom and that God's rule and reign in the hearts and lives of people. 
So they come to him and they say, Lord, teach us, explain to us this parable of the weeds of the field. And so Jesus begins by saying that the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. And in the explanation, Jesus identifies himself as the sower. He says that uh, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. Verse 37 there. Sorry, verse 30. Yeah, verse 37. The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. This was Jesus' favourite um, title or you know, the way in which he, he, he identified himself, this Son of Man. And it speaks of, it uh, has, has um, um, references right back into Daniel chapter 7 where it speaks of this, you know, this ruler who's going to come and he's going to set up this, this wonderful and perfect kingdom. Jesus often refers to himself as the Son of Man. In fact, nearly a hundred times in the Gospels, we see Jesus referring to himself as the Son of Man. So the good, the, the one who sows is Jesus. And it says, the field is the world. And the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. Verse 38. Pretty simple, isn't it? Jesus says, yep, I'm the sower. I'm the one sowing the seed in my field, the world. And we need to understand that indeed it is the world that belongs to Jesus. And sometimes today we can forget that Jesus is indeed the one who owns the world and who rules the world. But it is he who created it. Colossians 1, 15 to 16 says this. For he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Jesus is indeed the owner of the field. And in that field, in the world, we read that Jesus is about sowing seed in the world. And that seed is the children of God, the sons of God, people who have come to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus has sown us in the world as his representatives. But then Jesus says that sneakily and maliciously, what we see is an enemy comes and also sows seeds in the same field. We go back in the, uh, in the um, parable to, uh, to verse 25 where it says, But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. And in the explanation in verse 39, it says, The enemy who sowed the seeds is the devil or Satan himself. And the seeds that he sows are indeed his sons or his children, if you like. They are the sons of the evil one. It's interesting that this was very much uh, you know, um, something that took place in that first century, that ag- agricultural world of the first century. You know, if one person had a, a bit of a grievance or a vendetta or a, you know, harboured ill feelings toward another person in that society, what they would do is they would sneakily come in at night and one way that they could really get back at them was to over-sow their field of wheat with weeds. And so when the weeds came up, it would just basically ruin the whole crop. And so that person, it would be a huge financial cost to that person and his family with these weeds come up. It was a form of vandalism in that day. But it was a very effective way of actually causing another person a great deal of harm and a great deal of suffering. 
Jesus identifies this enemy, our enemy today, as the devil or Satan, and as I said, the seeds as the sons of the evil one. And when it's discovered that these weeds have actually come up amongst the wheat, there is a, a tension point, a crisis point, if you like, because we read that uh, you know the, the, the servants of the master of the house, in verse 27, come and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? In other words, what are we to do about these weeds that have come up in the fields? Do we rip them up? Do we pull them out, Lord? Should we get rid of them? Surprisingly, the master says no. Because uprooting the weeds, because in uprooting the weeds, the danger would be that they would uproot the actual heart, the, the weed as well. That they would have a detrimental effect to that which was meant to be there. Verse 30, let them both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the weed into my barn. The master orders that both be left together to grow until the harvest. Because at this time, then it will be easy to sort out one from the other. The weeds can be bundled up and burnt, the wheat, however, can be brought into the barn of the master. There's an important thing to recognise when it comes to the weeds. These weeds that are mentioned here in this parable are actually a, a form of ryegrass known as darnel. And it, was a, and, it, and it had a poisonous seed to it. But in its early stages, the darnel and the wheat, they looked exactly the same. They looked identical. You could not tell, you, you could, it was almost impossible to tell them apart in the early stages. But when it gets to maturity and produces its grain or its fruit, if you like, then it was, you could tell them apart and then they could be sorted out. And what we learn in this is that one of the key ways that Satan seeks to undermine and oppose and destroy the kingdom of God is through he creating counterfeits. Satan creates counterfeits. In fact, the, the scriptures refer to Satan as the father of lies in John 8, chapter, 40, chapter 8, verse 44. That Satan's purpose is to build a kingdom of his own in opposition to God's kingdom. That he'll use false teachers to spread his word. That he'll masquerade as an angel of light in 2 Corinthians 11. That he'll set up a counterfeit religion which seeks to, to undermine and actually, actually usurp the authority of God and to take, take the place of God's authority, effectively setting people up as their own gods in this world. Not only that, he convinces us to take pride in our human works as if they will then put us in some kind of right standing with God. This counterfeit religion that, that Satan is, is all about, you know, building up in our world today seeks to, uh, to worship the created things rather than the creator. And what it also do is it actually puts men at odds or at conflict with one another instead of bringing them together, instead of uniting them. So we see that God is building his kingdom, but Satan is also at work trying to build his kingdom too and, and he's trying to build this counterfeit kingdom and convince people that his, his, you know, his kingdom is the one to be a part of, not God's kingdom. 
So Satan is at work in our world sowing these seeds. But in contrast to the weeds, we see the wheat. Jesus' children here are planted in order to produce a harvest for him. In other words, we're meant to grow and mature and bear fruit for Jesus Christ as the wheat. And we are to do that in the place that God has planted us. Did you know that God has planted you where you are? Your life, when where you are right now, is where God intends for you to be? There in your neighbourhoods, where you live, that is where you are to be wheat for God. That is where you are to be God's person in that kind, in that context. Being that salt and light in that context for Jesus Christ. But even closer to home, they're in your family too, parents. That's where God has planted you too. In order to nurture and raise your children. Let's extend it out a bit further to our, to the, to our places that we, that we, you know, go out into week by week, whether it be into the workplace or whether it be into, uh, the school or the university, whether it be into, uh, you know, social circles, whether it be into the schools, you know, that we go to as parents, that sort of thing. God has planted you there in that place specifically to be wheat and to bear fruit for Him. And God has also planted you here in this church to be wheat for him, to bear fruit, to bear a harvest for him here in this place and in this community. So you think about it at the moment, your own context, whether it be your, your home, your neighborhood, your, you know, where you go through, you know, where you go, you know, each week, whether it be your social groups, you know, other activities that you're involved in through the week, whether it be the schools I said, but also here in the church, the, 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 the actual church context here. God has specifically planted you in these places. Did you know that? And He has a purpose. For each and every one of us. And that is to be his ambassadors. To be his representatives. To be or to use the gifts that he's given us in order to see his kingdom extended and built up. And for some of you, God will even take you you into other parts of the world to do that. So my question to you this morning, in the places where God has planted you, how effective are you being for him right now? How much fruit is actually being born from your life as God's wheat in the place that he's planted you? How much fruit is being born for the kingdom of God from your life right now? Of course, David spoke about this uh, this fruit, this aspect of fruit again last week. 
And we can look at the, you know, the fruit as being, first of all, the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. That kind of fruit. Is that kind of fruit visible in your life? What about Philippians 1, 9 to 11, the fruit of righteousness? Where Paul says, it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. How much is your life today bringing praise and glory to God? That's a hard question, isn't it? But as we, that's the kind of questions we need to be asking ourselves today. If God has planted us in these specific you know, contexts that we, we live and move, God has done that for a purpose and that is to bear fruit for him, then how effective are we being for God and how much, are we, how much praise and honour and glory are we bringing to God in that environment, in those environments? Folks, today, sadly, we are just living for ourselves as, as Christians. We have swallowed the devil's lies that the world has much more to offer us than what God does. We have swallowed Satan's lies that in fact the things of this world will satisfy those deep and inner desires of us more than what Jesus Christ will. We have swallowed Satan's lies that we are in fact to be our own gods and when God is to be put in an in a, in a inferior place to what we are in our lives in terms of authority and what we do. And we come here on a Sunday and we sing praises, we sing the songs of, you know, that, that we sing up on the screen, we pray and we hear God's word and then we walk out those doors and it's as if as though we have not heard anything that has taken place in this, in this, you know, in this building on a Sunday morning. Because we go straight back out there and we start living our lives as though we are God and God, well, if we can fit you into our lives in some way, shape or form, then we will. But otherwise, you know, we'll, we'll just, we'll see you next Sunday. God had some really, really harsh words for his people in the Old Testament where he says, you know what, I despise your religious festivals and your sacrifices and that sort of thing. He said, I'd rather you not bring them to me because I don't have your heart. Does God have your heart this morning? Really, truly, does he truly have your heart today? Because if he doesn't, you're not going to be bearing the kind of fruit that he expects to see from your life, that he so desires to see from your life. And in fact, as you go out into the world, the only effect you'll be having out there in the world is the same kind of effect as the weeds have growing up in the harvests. And that is being disruptive. But does Jesus say that because, you know, he's, he's just some kind of, of, um, of narcissist or some kind of, you know, just wanting all the glory for himself? No, he says, I want you to be these kind of people because this is what's best for you and for your life. 
In John 10, 10, Jesus says, I have come that they may have life and have life to the full. We are to be representatives of God and his kingdom. We are to be the salt and light in our community to influence the world in terms of righteousness and purity and peace and goodness. In fact, we are to be people who, who everything about our lives points to the fullness of life that is found only in Jesus Christ. I think, again, sadly for us today, because we just have not experienced that real life found in Jesus for ourselves, because we are still so stuck with the things of this world and the law and believing the lies of Satan, we don't know what it looks like to live the abundant life in Jesus Christ. Can we truly be the people that First Peter 2.12 speaks about where it says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honourable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. As we go out into the world and as we live the kind of life that God has called us to live, are there people around about you, even though they don't agree with you and they actually oppose what you believe and that sort of thing, can they still say about you, you know what, there is something still good about that person? In actual fact, there is some kind of, of power that that person has in their life, some kind of supernatural power that about that person's life that goes beyond the things of this world and ultimately will lead people to believing that there is a God, praising God on the day he visits us. Because that's the kind of life God wants us to be living. And it's God's purpose that we should do this, even though there are people in our world today and systems in our world today who are completely opposed to God and to his kingdom. People and systems who seek to overcome God and his people, who seek to deceive us and lead us astray, whose fruit is poison and destruction. Yet it is God's purpose that we should live alongside these weeds. That's the hard part, isn't it? That we've got to live there amongst this opposition right now to God and his kingdom. I don't know about you, but the question that I ask is, why, God? (laughs) Why? I think there's a few reasons. The first is this, that one of the reasons that God uses, or why the, one of the reasons why God wants us to remain in the world and to, uh, to exist amongst the weeds is that he might use them to mature us and strengthen us in our faith. 1 Peter 1, 6-7 says this, in this, this suffering you rejoice, though now, oh, sorry, in this, talking about, you know, the, the blessing we have in Jesus Christ, he says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honour at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter's saying, you know, you know that, you know, your hope is, is secure in Jesus Christ, 
you're going to experience suffering and hardship in this world, but God's purpose in that is that your faith might be proved genuine, that it actually might be refined and purified, so it actually is of a quality that truly shows the glory of God in your life today. James 1, 2-4 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. God wants us to become complete in him. God wants us not to be lacking anything in our lives when it comes to being his people. And so one of the ways he accomplishes that in our lives is by placing us into situations where our faith is tested, where we need to endure and persevere, where we need to basically just continue to keep trusting in God no matter what. And in those places I referred to before where God has planted you and called you, there are going to be times and there are going to be you know situations that arise that are going to cause you all kinds of suffering and all kinds of hardship and all kinds of frustrations and all kinds of disappointments and all kinds of discouragements. But God says, persevere. Endure because in that I will create in you and I will just refine you so that you will indeed shine through my shine. I will shine through you my glory in a way that cannot be seen in any other way. Do you see your trials and your sufferings in that context? From our point of view, though, we're probably a little bit like the servants. Since you know, Lord, Master, we just want to rip these weeds up and get get rid of them. We don't want to have to endure it. We don't have to. We don't have to. We don't have to want to put up with the suffering and the hardship and the opposition that comes from the weeds that are in the world. You know, existing alongside us as the wheat. Can't we just rip them up? Well, God says no. Because it's not his purpose. In fact, it's not God's purpose that we should seek to forcibly bring about his kingdom. In fact, when Jesus was, you know, doing his his public ministry, there are people who would come from time to time and try to actually forcibly make him make him king, try and forcibly bring about his kingdom. And Jesus says, "No, no, no. That's not the way I'm meant to go. That is not the kind of kingdom I am looking to set up." In fact, my kingdom will come through sacrifice and my kingdom will come through suffering. But we don't want to know about that. We don't want want to know about the hardships. We don't want to know about the suffering. We don't want to know about having to make sacrifices. We don't want to know about the opposition and stuff that we'll have to face. Rather, we just want it all done and dusted with right here and now. So that we can live these nice, comfortable, and safe lives, you know, and and uh, and just be, you know, just the, you know, safely cocooned in this, you know, in this little kind of nice, safe environment. You might ask, well, how could, how do we forcibly bring about God's kingdom? How do we try and do this? Well, one of the ways is that we try to seek to identify the evil and get rid of it in any kind of way we can. And in fact, you go through, back through history and you see when the church had significant power in, you know, in societies in our world and see what the church did in those kind of contexts. 
the damage that the church caused not only to itself but to the world in those contexts? God says, you know what? You just don't have any idea about what the kingdom's meant to be. Don't try to bring it about by force, but rather follow in the footsteps of my son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And follow his example of humility and sacrifice and trust and faithfulness. And one of the things that we do when, you know, when it comes to judging, and we, we do it all the time, we seek to judge and try and remove evil, but the fact of the matter is, is that we are not good judges. Folks, we are not good judges. In fact, when it comes to judging, we often judge by appearances. And appearances can be very, very deceptive. It is only God who sees the heart. Not only do we judge by appearances, but we also judge hypocritically. We see the sin in others, but we fail to see similar sin in our own lives. Jesus says, before you judge, remove the plank out of your own eye before you try to remove the splinter out of your brother's eye. We can often judge with impure motives or with self-righteous attitudes. You know, remember the, the, the parable of the, the Pharisee and, the, uh, and the, uh, the tax collector, how they came you know, to pray before God and the Pharisee says, I thank God that I'm not like this guy over here, that I'm, you know, that I'm really, really good and I follow all the commandments and that sort of stuff. And the tax collector comes and says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus says only one of those people that day went away righteous before God and it's not the person you think. <laughs> it wasn't the religious person. And we can often judge falsely. In other words, we just get it plain wrong, folks. Yes, we are to be discerning. And we should lovingly and graciously confront sin and evil in our world when we see it. But our goal is never to condemn from the point of how God condemns. Look at Jesus and his ministry. Who did Jesus spend most time with? He ate with the tax collectors and sinners. In fact, one of the key opposition of the, of the religious people to Jesus is that he eats with these unclean people. Look at Jesus' encounter with the woman at the well there in John 4. Did Jesus condemn that woman, even though the kind of background and history that she had and the kind of life that she was living? Did he condemn her? No. Instead, what he wanted to do was invite her into life with him, an abundant life, a fruitful life, and a deeply satisfying life. The woman caught in adultery brought before Jesus. All the religious people were there standing, ready to stone her. And the only one who had any right to stone her on that day was Jesus Christ, the one who had no sin. And what does Jesus say to the woman? Who is it that condemns you? Not me. But go and don't continue in this kind of life anymore. Because it's not for you. It won't bring about the kind of fulfillment and meaning and, and satisfaction that you're really desiring in your life today. You'll only find that in me. Instead, we are to patiently persevere in the faith. That we are to patiently persevere in faith and obedience to Jesus Christ the King. Folks, in a world full of evil and wickedness where Satan seems in control 
and his children appear to be taking over, it is so easy to get disillusioned and discouraged. But we need to allow God to do the judging at his appointed time. He will judge and God will do it with absolute fairness and with absolute certainty. We need to remember the words of Jesus in John 16:33 where he says to his disciples, "In this world you will have trouble, but take heart because I've overcome the world." The last thing that this parable points out, the other clear thing that this parable points out that there not only are there are only two types of people in this world, the sons of the kingdom and the children of the devil, but there are two final destinations. The fiery furnace or the lake of fire and the kingdom of the Father. The question we need to ask ourselves is this. What kind of seed am I? What kind of seed are you today? Are you wheat or are you weed? And if you are wheat... And as I said before, what is the kind of quality of fruit that you are bearing for God right now? If you are weed, then can I say that it is not too late to respond to God's free gift of salvation in Jesus Christ. For you to be able to discover the kind of life that God has intended for you, a life that is lived to the full. A fruitful life, an abundant life. You don't have to be a weed. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the instruction that we've received from your word this morning and from the challenge that we've received from it, knowing that, uh, Lord, you have planted your good seed out there in the world. And amongst our number here, there are, there are those good seeds. And we thank you for that. We thank you for the blessing it is to know you and be known by you. To be your children and to know the abundant life that can be found only in you. Lord, help us not to believe the lies of the devil. Help us not to be captivated by the things of this world, but instead help us to seek the things that are above. Lord, this morning we pray that you would indeed continue to produce in us that fruit, that fruit of righteousness in the places where you have planted us and help us to be people who are content to be where we are right now, knowing that you have indeed planted us in your wisdom and in your goodness. Help us to trust in your purposes. Help us not to seek to want to, to rid ourselves of the evil and that sort of thing, but instead, Lord, to be content to allow you to work in us and through us to be influences where the evil is shown up for what it is and people can see that there is a better way to live in Jesus Christ so that you get the glory.
Amen.